Buckle up, listeners. Today, we're taking you on a road trip down treatment lane as we continue to steer down the crossroads of the body in our discussion of low back pain. Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Welcome back to the Therapist in Motion podcast series, guys. I'm Jen Lee, here with Dan Mirioski, and remotely is Mr. Andrew Walquist. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Yeah, so if you guys haven't listened to episode 39, our first one about Google PC low back pain, you might be a little lost on why we're using car puns. Um, but Paul Guyano and Andrew had done a really, really awesome job of giving some analogies. Paul saying that the low back is actually the crossroads of the body. And then Andrew saying, okay, I can take a picture of an engine of a car and show it to you. And can you tell me if my car works well? And obviously we would say, no, you can't. But the point about that is to go back and say, okay, you can take an image. You can look at somebody standing. You can do something static. You can have an MRI. Does that show you what actually the body is doing in movement? So today we're going to go back to kind of the start of what was the birthplace of Google PT. What are the exercises that are typically given on Google for low back pain? And what do we think of those? And yeah, kind of riff off of that. Sound good? Looking forward to it. Love it. So, <laughs> so... In looking up, I, I know each of us will probably bring up different exercises, but is there any thoughts you guys have before we get started or any specific exercise you want to start with? No, I, I would say as I was doing some prep for today's episode that I was actually surprised at the differences on Google when I when I searched low back pain exercises um, as compared to the previous podcast that we've done on the same topic, there was, a, there was a greater uniformity, um, which I think is both good and bad for our profession <laughs> and good and bad for our patients. I think that'll allow for a, some really good conversation between us today. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think that that just goes to show that there's a lot of different ways to treat the low back. And there's still a lot that some people don't realize about how to appropriately and efficiently and effectively treat the low back. So I hope that that's one thing that we can convey to our listeners today is that yes, there is a lot of different ways, but still to co go back to that core foundational principle of, you know, don't treat based on what the MRI says, treat based on what the patient presents with and their symptoms and their movement dysfunctions. And, you know, I think we'll probably get into this a little bit as well is, is talking about, you know, how much of their symptomology is, is, has a directional preference or not. Um, and so we'll try and make a connection back to you know, the, the lumbar clinical prediction rule and trying to find a directional preference and all those things that have been a, a solid foundation of the world of physical therapy for a, for a number of years. Nice. So Dan, just out of curiosity, if you said there's a lot of uniformity between a couple of exercises, how about you just start off with what were the top couple that come to your mind as very consistent across your Google search? Yeah, so I think the first one, and Jen and I were talking to this in our in our show prep, um, was you know I think the most common one is is a lower trunk rotation, um, you know where they're they're in, they're in hook line or modifying hook line and they're just rocking those knees side to side. 
and you know, I think this is this is actually an exercise that is probably fairly commonly given um, as a home program on day one for a lot of therapists across the country. Is that necessarily a bad thing? No, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think the education behind when they do it and how often they do it, it, it can be a di- differentiating factor. I mean, you have that person who has some low-grade osteoarthritis and, you know, to go back to the to the car analogy, they've got that that synovial fluid is like engine oil and it, it, it hasn't been moved very much throughout the night and it's like a car that sat for too long. You go to start that car, and it's probably going to start, assuming that the battery's not dead, aka the heart. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> just, just got real dark real quick. <laughs> but but it's like that 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 oil viscosity gets less as the engine heats up, and so a lot of times for my patients, I give that lower trunk rotation. I say, do this the first thing before you get out of bed. Do it for two to three minutes, and just kind of get. Your that synovial fluid less viscous and moving it and coating the joint structures and go. You know, mm-hmm. do you need my skill and expertise to prescribe that exercise after day one? No, and unless there's a memory component. But um, so that 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 was one of the ones that I saw that was pretty consistent uh, across the Google search. Um, and I do want to circle back around after I kind of go through a couple more for for you guys to chime in. Um, the second one, it would be either like a draw and mover or a posterior pelvic tilt with uh, transverses of dominus contraction. Um, I think we've we've all seen the research and it's very uh, pronounced out there with you know utilizing ultrasound, uh, ultrasound imaging to see that you know with with TA contraction that the more you do it, the the bigger that muscle contraction becomes and the more efficient it becomes, right? But I would argue that in no part of human function movement do we have to consciously think about contracting our TA before we do a dynamic movement. That should become automatic. And as, you know, we've alluded to previously in other podcasts, you know, uh, the evidence is resounding that in low back, the prevalence of low back pain, the core does not fire automatically first, right? And as soon as that low back pain is gone, it does not automatically return to firing first. Now, am I saying that a posterior pelvic tilt and a drawn mover is, is necessarily wrong? No, you might need that for a tactile feedback and, and get some initiation. But then I want to turn that into um, integrated isolation versus isolated integration. Awesome. Um, so I'm I, gonna, I, okay. want, I want you guys to, to, to comment on those two as well. You know, I mean, or those three, I guess, if you want to call it lower trunk rotations and then, you know, draw and mover and, and post your pelvic tilt. Okay. So in keeping with the car puns going in reverse uh. <laughs> to the lower trunk rotation. Um, I agree with Dan about that one. I personally don't find, unless it's the only position somebody is comfortable and only exercise they can do, which I've had those patients. I don't give it as something that you do three to four times a day. You know, it's something that you do just to kind of grease up the system, get it moving before you're getting out of bed in the morning. That's kind of typically what I do with my students. I want them to see specifically what what are the facets doing with that motion? It's and we'll talk about this a little bit more. It's a bottom up driver. But where are the facets lying in a hook lying position? When I take my knees to the left, which one's gapping, which one's compressing and Maybe based off of your assessment, do you want to get specific? Do I just want to do a lower trunk rotation to the left or do I just want to do one to the right? Um, And being able to see 
three-dimensionally. If I'm taking my knees to the left, I'm going to be gapping bottom up that right side facet. Um, and so being able to be specific, not just giving it out of, oh, this is easy and it's something that they can do, but understanding the reason why you would give it is is huge in my opinion. Um, I can keep going about the TA contraction. I, I'm not one to give posterior pelvic tilts a lot or a lot of supine pelvic drivers at all. I see a reason for them. Um, but actually in a posterior pelvic tilt where I feel like in school they teach us, oh, it's a gapping technique for the lumbar spine. Again, if you're thinking visually, where are the facets sitting? It's actually more compression for the facets in that position to do a posterior pelvic tilt. Um, and to be able to see that, um, I think is su- super important. And it makes it more specific. Again, if you're going to give this exercise to your patient, do you know why? Um, as far as core activation, especially in people that have visceral issues or restrictions, I will do releases in the abdominal area and then go into your exercises like the cannonball, um, things like that that are more isometric and holds to actually increase proprioception in that area. But I agree, it does not translate into function. So the importance is, are you carrying that through? Are you changing home programs? Are you changing and actually moving them when they come in the clinic consistent with what their goals are? Nice. Yeah, I think something that you guys brought up, which is, which is very fascinating, is that both those exercises that you just named, Dan, were is that it essentially just moves the pelvis, right? I mean, whenever we talk about the whatever Paul talked about in the last podcast about the back being the crossroads of the body and that everything south of the low back is going to be pelvis. That's one way you can get effective motion of your lumbar spine. What I find that's really interesting is that how many people who are just graduated out of PT school, evaluated in person, I don't see them doing very much of a pelvic movement assessment with a person. I mean, typically what I see people do is that they have the patient stand up and they go through the cardinal planes of motion, more using the chest as a driver. So they go through full flexion, extension, right side bend, sorry, right side bend, left side bend, right rotation, left rotation, all with moving the chest or the hands. And through that, they get the idea of okay, this is how this person moves in all three planes of motion. That's not a that's not a bad thing. But then for them to say, okay, now I'm going to have you lie down, and this is going to be part of your exercise prescription is moving your pelvis. I say, well, wait a minute, did you really take a look at? that isolated pelvic movement approach yet? Is that something that you really want to do? Or is that part of their, if it's part of their assessment, that's fine. But I would like to challenge the notion of just saying, taking someone through just cardinal planes of motion assessment top down will automatically equal the fact that you can do that motion bottom up. And so another discrepancy that I see with low trunk rotations, I've met a lot of people that are really fearful about having anyone doing any twisting exercise with a low back, especially yeah. when they're standing. And they say, okay, well, whatever you do, don't twist, hold everything real tight. But yet they're giving an exercise that is obvious, obviously twisting their low back. So, and which is, is helpful. I think that is one of the reasons why um, you've seen a high degree of uniformity. That's why so far two out of two people that have chimed in say that's a good exercise to do and that they've given to a patient. I'd be a third person to say I give that a lot to my patients too whenever they're already lying down just to lube up the gears, if you will. You know, And so we know that through that exercise, transverse plane motion can have a dramatic positive effect for a person's low back. But yet we have them stand and exercise and not have them twist. There's a big, big discrepancy with that. And so while we like those exercises, I'd say, ooh, so if we're finding transverse plane motion of 
the low back through using a pelvic driver is good. How can we simulate that standing up? So, so I like the exercise. I like what, what information gives us, but I say, what do we do with that information? How do we apply it in more of a upright position or whatever reflects that patient's function the best? And then as far as the, um, core activation, draw in maneuver, posterior pelvic tilt. Again, posterior pelvic tilt, you're moving the pelvis once again. Did you assess that that was the best thing for the patient standing up? Or is that, or, or are you confusing that patient with knowing what, what they need to do with that pelvis? I think pelvis, pelvic awareness, it is critical with patients with low back pain, knowing proprioceptively where they are. Is that the best way of getting them to be aware of that pelvis? I'm not exactly sure, but where I can foresee a potential logic with that, which it's, it goes along the line of going towards a patient's successful position, as you were saying, Jen, mm-hmm. is that whenever someone is standing and they do a little draw-in maneuver, posterior pelvic, doing a posterior pelvic tilt, they are getting a little bit more of a gapping motion of their lumbar spine. Would you agree that in a standing position? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so, so we know that that increased gap can, might be the thing that helps them reduce a little bit of pain. But is that really the most successful thing at avoiding that person's pain? If the opposite of that, an anterior pelvic tilt is the thing that hurts them, are we trying to just teach that person to concentrically posterior pelvic tilt when they stand, kind of like doing a Steve Urkel position. I hope the <laughs> podcast listeners know who that is. You're I felt really yourself. old the other day when I said Steve Urkel, and someone looked at me like I, I had no idea who it was. <laughs> well, welcome back to the 80s and 90s, everybody. <laughs> I love that. But it's not so much the the fact that that posterior pelvic tilt is bad, but I think what bites most patients in, in upright function is, is uncontrolled, rapid anterior tilt of their pelvis. So it's more that eccentric lowering of that anterior pelvic tilt that we need to teach a patient is just teaching them to posterior pelvic tilt really the right motor pattern we want to train the person. I would argue probably not. But Mm -hmm. again, if it's proprioceptively helping teach that person that they have a pelvis and that they control that pelvis, maybe that wouldn't be a bad idea. Right. I agree with you about, you know, the pelvis being uncontrolled in the anterior tilt. Um, I can see where that would lead to wanting to do a posterior pelvic tilt. However, you know, research suggests that, okay, if I'm in the presence of chronic back pain or back pain in general, you're going to have spasms of the adductors that attach to the anterior part of the pubis that's going to pull you into an anterior tilt. So just doing things like a posterior pelvic tilt, although you're driving where the origin is, it's not going to correct those reactions that the body's making to try and protect the back in that, in that sense. Um, you had talked about, and I think this is brilliant, the top-down assessment that I've seen every student go through. And I feel like they just do it because I'm just doing it and seeing if there's anything that's obviously painful. I don't really know if I'm even looking at the quality of motion or how far they go one way or the other or if there's a correlation to, you know, facet versus whatever it may be at that point. Um, at least I've seen that in some of my students. Um, but then switching gears and saying, then you give pelvic driven stuff, which in my opinion would be more of a bottom up assessment, right? So when you guys look at bottom up, if you're integrating that into assessment, what does that mean for you? How would one I of my, that? yeah, one of my go-tos is, is I do do the, you know, the top down cardinal approach that, that I was taught in PT school. I feel like that is number one, you know, functional for the people that come in and say that they have pain when bending over and getting something. Well, I do want to kind of test to see where their body's limits are. 
and to see if there's a way that I can at least maybe have them leave the clinic knowing how they can bend over and tie their shoes a little bit better uh, that that evening or, or tomorrow morning. You know, but where I want to ask how their pelvis moves, there's a various ways I do it. If you want to do a, um, a very local approach, which I've been able to easily sell to some of my students, is that you can just have that person stand, place both hands on the wall. So imagine like they're getting arrested or something like that. But then that's where you can take their pelvis and have them go through all those carnal motions. You can have them go through an anterior tilt, posterior tilt, or you can have their pelvis go through an anterior translation and posterior translation. And then you can go right and left lateral, which will get a right left side bending of the low back, as well as a left right rotation. With their hands fixed on the wall, that is for a lot of people with acute low back pain, that's already given them a position of a little bit of comfort, a little bit more stability. And that way you can see how loudly that pelvis is contributing to their pain or not. And if that doesn't really yield too much information, well, maybe it's because you're getting them too stable. And then that's where you can take them through a simple lunge matrix to where you are driving that pelvis in all three planes of motion and then seeing where their um, where their pain is coming from. That's how you'd see me do it. How about you, Dan? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very similar. I don't always fix their hands against the wall. Sometimes I just cross their arms in front um, and I'll do it potentially passively as well as actively. Um, but I, I think there's another, you know, I mean, we've historically thought of the pelvis having, you know, really six motions. I would argue that there's probably eight because we often forget the ability of the pelvis to elevate and depress, which is hugely important for efficient gait. If we go back to our principles of, of PNF that we all learned in PT school, we learned the pelvic patterns, right? Anterior elevation, posterior depression, and anterior depression, posterior elevation, right? So you've got those diagonals. I hope I said that right. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think I think that's another thing that we really have to look at is, do they have pelvic control in all eight motions and where are they lacking? And if they're lacking in one, what compressive forces is that translating up into that lumbar spine? Um, and, and I think that, that that's that's a huge opportunity to look from a bottom-up standpoint because so many of the exercises that, that we found on Google are really bottom-up exercises. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, if you look at like the cat camel, you know, I mean, they're, they're in, they've got their arms and legs isolated, right? So depending on where motion is going to come from, you could either call it bottom up or top down, depending on if they shift their weight more anteriorly over their hands or more posteriorly over their feet, right? Or superior inferiorly, right? Um, like we already talked about the, the lower, lower trunk rotation, single knee to chest. I mean, that's bottom up, right? It's not top down because their trunk is fixated. So I think that that analysis and, and, and looking at, you know, historically, yeah, the cardinal plane movement of top down is, is widely accepted, but so many of the exercises go the opposite direction that making that a part of our assessment is hugely beneficial. I mean, I, I think, you know, again, as we were talking in our, in our pre-show uh, prep is like some of these exercises are, are direct contradictories of each other where you put them into a position of lumbar flexion and then you go into a position of lumbar extension. Right. And so th those people that come in and they're doing all these exercises, we really don't know what's making them feel better or what's making them feel worse. Right. Um, and I think that's something that that obviously a clinical reasoning should be able to tell us and we should be able to provide that value to our patient on he based on your presentation of symptoms and what I'm seeing from a movement dysfunction, both looking at you top down and bottom up. 
these are the ones that I want you to continue to do on your own because clearly you've already been doing them, right? right. Exactly. <laughs> because how many people come in and like, oh yeah, well, these are all the exercises that I did at Google or these are the exercises that my primary care physician gave me. Um, and it's, it's just a simple print off of, of things that you're going to find off Google. And I'm not saying that's wrong from a primary care, right? right. They're trying to do something to help their patient in the moment. Mm-hmm. And they're trying, oh. I mean, there is no pattern to those i'm not going to harp on it not being individualized because we're going to get there but there's no like he said there's no pattern some of them are more extension based some are more flexion based our job is to find a pattern to why would this patient have the pain what is not moving well what's moving too much what does their history tell you about it can you put it all together based off of what they told you i have difficulty or pain doing this are we actually looking at whatever that is I have difficulty walking. Are we looking at walking? I have difficulty running. Are you watching him run? Are you watching him go into a golf swing? You know what happens in those motions. Um, and then taking exercises, I would call simple exercises, like what we're talking about here today, and progressing them to look like motions of those functional tasks. Absolutely. I love how you're just drawing in just the movement variable that a lot of those printouts, I mean, on a casual observer might say, oh, those are obviously low back exercises because they're doing something to the low back. But that's just the structure of it. And as we talked about in our last podcast, you know, they're, how we like to treat the low back by not treating it because there's so many different things yeah. that can really, really feed into it. And so those low back directed exercises, is that really what the low back needs or is the low back getting bit because that person's subtalar joint calf is so locked up or because their shoulder's so locked up that they need to get that excessive motion from the low back just to perform whatever task that, that they're getting. So which I went down this movement variable, a lot of the um, vanilla exercises I see prescribed by primary care, the ones I saw on, on Google webpage, a lot of them are bilateral exercises. So low trunk rotation, knees going right, left, posterior pelvic tilt, obviously that's something that is affecting well, not one side more than the other. But I would say that of all the low back patient population that I see, um, that I that they have unilateral symptoms. I know there's a lot of people that have bilateral symptoms, but how would you guys say you guys treat someone with unilateral back pain as compared to like a diffuse generalized bilateral low back pain? Would you would you prescribe your exercises differently? Can I say it depends? <laughs> I always say it depends. So yes, I can say it depends. Um, I feel in my brain, unilateral is easier for me to assess. Um, I'm looking, okay, this seems very specific down the L5 right leg, something like that. And then looking based off of what you said, it hurts when I walk. What part of walking hurts you? I'm very functional. I'm going to look at what happens when your leg is back in gait on that right side and you always get that pinch every single time. What does that mean for me? What motions do I need to break down based off of if I take a snapshot of your right leg back during your walking? What things are supposed to be happening? What do I not see happening, even if it's not in the back? And what can I promote in that chain to move better and take the stress off the back? So I, I honestly, I think the same way for bilateral or unilateral. Um, I feel like sometimes it's more easily correlated for unilateral in my head. Um, but I might be unique in that perspective. Yeah, I would say to answer you that, that question about unilateral, <clears throat> unilateral, I'm probably going to do a lot more of an assessment from a bottom-up standpoint. I'm going to really look at what is their mobility of their hip relative to their anonymous, 
relative to their sacrum, relative to their L5, S1, L4, L5 region, as opposed to if they come in and they kind of have that diffuse waistband, you know, non-radicular type pain, that oftentimes then then will I will probably look a little bit more top down and say, you know, what assuming that there's no significant known past medical history of a, you know, ankle fusion or or something like that, right? Um, especially in somebody that's like a golfer, I'm going to, I'm going to probably look, you know, mainly through their hips and then, and look at those in unison as, as opposed to looking at those isolations. Um, that's, that, that's really my approach when I have somebody that has a unilateral symptom versus a bilateral symptom is, you know, uh, when it's unilateral, I do a more thorough assessment of the unilateral side comparing to the contralateral side mm-hmm. versus a bilateral symptom. I do basically everything bilaterally. And perhaps that means I'm missing something. And that's quite plausible that I need to do the exact opposite in those symptoms, but in those situations, but that that's what I do currently. But that's a really interesting concept for me to mm-hmm. reflect upon on my own. Same. What about from your treatment approach on that, Andrew? Yeah. I mean, for, so for me, I, I like you, I mean, whenever, well, first let me take a step back. I try to look at everything from what they want to accomplish. So what does that patient want to do? And sometimes what they want to do, it is very one-sided. Like a a golfer will always accelerate in one position, you know, uh, but as compared to a walker, that should be a fairly symmetrical bilateral activity for for the patient. So I I start with, with what they really want to accomplish and try to assess them there. But what I've been finding um, over my past few years of treatment is that I do see a big difference with some uh, in terms of my exercise prescription for somebody that has unilateral back pain compared to some bilateral back pain. Um, and I and, and for me, it, to me, it, it makes more logical sense if they're having pain more with one side, if they're having more tension one side, shouldn't I be doing things more or less to one side versus the other? And I'll just stay with those generalities. And, and to me, that makes sense um, that that if even though the spine, it is one kind of continuous centralized unit going up and down. There is a laterality to it. And, and why would I just, if someone came in with a one shoulder issue, would I always treat the, the other shoulder the same? Or would I still like to treat them a little bit differently? And so mm-hmm. I view a back treatment being the same. Yeah. I, I will treat them differently. And, and I will maybe add more load onto one side or when someone's getting to the point where if you're using a top down driver, why not throw a five pound weight in the left hand and a two pound weight? in the right hand that will that throw that back into a a better balanced position that you're looking for with less pain rather than say oh i'm just used to always grabbing the same weight off the weight rack let's throw two five pounders in but mm-hmm. but if you're dealing with a unilateral weakness or a unilateral arthropathy symptom can i use a, a unilateral approach to help accelerate their, their progression. And so that's what I try to challenge like some PTAs that we have on staff is to say, okay, they have one-sided back pain, but yet I'm looking through your exercise prescription. I'm seeing the same exercise done on both sides. And, and a lot of times they say, oh, well, that's just to make that person even. Well, are they even in the first place? As, did, did they come in even or did they come in lopsided? So shouldn't we shouldn't we treat them in more of the lopsided manner that helps facilitate symmetry? But then that goes a whole into a whole <laughs> other discussion of does someone need to be symmetrical before they get symptom relief or do they need to be yeah. symmetrical to perform an activity? And that, that goes down a whole nother rabbit hole. I would argue if you could show me someone that's perfectly symmetrical, you're a liar. 
Yep. I don't think that happens at all. Um, what I was thinking a little bit further down this unilateral versus bilateral, I feel like I've had a lot of patients that start with a unilateral pain that progresses to a bilateral, more centralized, just globally across the back type of pain. Um, and I don't really, I can't really say I have a specific, this is what I do based off of that, but it's more digging into the history. When did it start? Where did you feel it? Did you feel it right in the middle of your back or did you feel it start more on one side or hurt more with one thing versus another and kind of go go off that because that'll give me the, okay, the cause might be associated with that one time they were helping their friend move and they were whatever it may be, you know, trying to backtrack it to this was the actual cause of it. Right, right. Um, okay, so I want to I want to circle back around to another very commonly shown uh, and 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 prescribed exercise for low back pain, and that's either you know I think there's there's two ways you could look at it. You could look at it as like a partial sit up crunch, or you could look at it as the common like dead bug exercise. You know to get that core activation and then you know some people will do movements off of the dead bug or movements off the partial crunch whether you want to call it a leg lower or opposite leg lower opposite arm lower um, or they're actually squeezing something as opposed to just holding their arms and their legs up Um, I want you guys to take a little bit of time and and talk about when and why you may or may not prescribe that exercise um and what the really what what we think the root purpose of that exercise truly is. Well, I'll stick my neck out there first. <laughs> the last time I gave someone that exercise, because there's very rarely I have someone that says this is exactly how I sit up in bed, um, or this is how I like to I don't know dance on the dance floor, flail my arms up in the air and my legs at the same time. I mean, like I don't see don't it care. as being terribly functional for for that patient and what they're trying to get at not to say that there aren't um, people that need to be very functional in a supine position I'm thinking of like a a swimmer that does the backstroke but a a backstroke doesn't really necessarily look like that as well and so while that's not very functional I what I imagine the the biomechanical thought process might be is that you're teaching the person how to control their pelvis with using various foot and arm drivers and to that extent i'd say well i do that all the time it mine just my exercise just look a little bit different than that yeah <laughs> uh i haven't given it in all well, I, I just see it as a spectrum because it's the same you know doing a little crunch versus the cannonball exercise i had alluded to earlier versus the full dead bug you know, I don't give the dead bug. I think about what does the core functionally do? And in that position against gravity, maybe the the positive for it is the alternating arm and leg diagonal type of thing. Um, but I see it being super, super aggressive, um, like a hernia creator or something like that. <laughs> um, so I don't really give that one, but I will break it down, do arms and or legs in that position. Um, you know, there's been some research that those positions with some tactile cueing can help with the diastasis and stuff like that. So I do think that there's a place for it if it's given very specifically. Um, and then again, translated into the function for what the person needs to do which is typically standing. So I'm going to play devil's advocate because I actually, 
Um, I actually give this exercise a lot. I don't call it a dead bug. Um, and my purpose is back to the underlying principle of, of irradiation from PNF. Um, so I'm going to use come in low and slow with my arms against my thighs by giving a little bit of tactile traction um, as opposed to approximation. Traction or approximation are two huge principles of PNF, right? And we know that the crossroads of the body is the lumbar spine, as Paul alluded to, and, and we've alluded to a couple times here. Um, so I will actually use this exercise a lot. Now, the one thing that I do is, I, again, I tell my patients to come in very low resistance with their hands and low traction. And what's going to happen is they're going to start to shake. They're going to be using those, those non-deep um, core muscles. They're going to be using you know, the, the big power muscles first. And I really want them to hold this position in a prolonged hold, again, another PNF principle, so that they get through those tonic shakes and they get into the deep, deep, deep fibers of their core. And what you'll see then is, is if you do that and you do it efficiently and appropriately, even on yourself, all of a sudden you'll notice that your breathing changes. Mm -hmm. And then your core engagement becomes so much more efficient not because you're, you're, you're activating your core more efficiently. It's because you're connecting the top half of your body with the bottom half of your body. And I think that's part of what I've heard you guys talk about today is connecting the top half with the bottom half. And I actually really think that the modified dead buck, you, you know, called an abdominal series through the Institute of Physical Art, give credit where credit's due, that that sequence really does help people connect their bottom half and their top half together. And a lot of times I've had patients get up from doing that and they then can go translate and perform higher level functional tasks because they've connected their top half and their bottom half via the principles of PNF. Sure. So, so I'd love to have you walk me through a little bit about how you translate that supine exercise to a standing exercise that looks a little bit similar. Yep. So that, that, that's a good question. Um, so that's where then I will, I will almost do like, uh, go off a position of success, put them in, in standing. Uh, I'll probably test how efficient their core is at firing and different diagonals and different posturings. Um, and then I will put them in that position of success and then drive them in another plane. So let's say that left foot forward LXX is their strongest diagonal for core engagement. Um, I will tell my patients to stand in that posturing anytime that then they're going to use their arms or legs outside of physical therapy. Okay, so mm -hmm. they're cooking dinner, they're washing their hair, they're doing laundry, they're changing their kid's diaper, they're doing whatever functional task that it is, I will put them in that left foot forward because when they move their arms, what should happen? Their core should engage first, right? So I'm going to build that, that, that position of success and then I'm going to drive them probably through the transverse plane um, in controlling rotation with an outside load. Mm -hmm. And again, do they have more success in flexion extension uh, and that's where then I will pre-position them in that LXX position, then move them gradually towards RXX. So simulate that translation into walking. So is the, in the, the in, Did that make sense? That makes sense, Andrew? Yeah. 
Yeah, um, no, I, I, I do. Yeah, and I think Jen, you're going to have the same question I do. Well, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I'm thinking, would you then see in them doing the dead bug and a greater ease or more control when they, like, say you said, I want them in LXX, that's where I see more of a stability. Do you see more of a control with the left hip going into flexion in that phase of the dead bug? Or yeah. So my dead bug is no movement. It's it's literally an isometric see, contraction. that's what I want to talk about. Yeah. I feel like there's a spectrum yeah, of... Yeah, so it's, yeah. it, it's, uh. it's solely isometric. There's no... There's no movement. And so to go back to your point, if I see that their left side hip flexion, let's just call it global hip flexion, is more efficient than their right side, then that means I need to, to train that right side and probably treat some things out to improve that efficiency and then train them in their new range of motion and tell their yeah. body, hey, look, now I've given you more motion. I mm-hmm. need to now train you to use that new motion in end range hip flexion which I feel like as a whole from what I've seen across the board, we're not very good at. No, I agree. Right. Yeah. So, the, so do, uh, with that kind of LXX, we, uh, strength and RXX weakness, could that then lead into your asymmetrical training of the ex- of, of the, of the patient that we were just talking about earlier? That'd be a case and say, Oh, maybe as a physical therapy, um, strength and exercise, this is, you might want to be more right-sided than left-sided. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've started to use asymmetrical load a lot more over the last two years. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's functional. Yeah, ab- <laughs> yeah you know, absolutely. I mean, it, it, yeah. it makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, how many people have a sidedness, quote-unquote, yeah. dominance? And what they think is their sidedness dominance is usually the exact opposite. Yeah, it, could be. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely could be. So, um, yeah. Wow, and something I want to just mention that I thought was really huge that, that you said whenever you do that abdominal series with patients and they get up and they, you said they can almost breathe better. Yep. That to me speaks of a whole underutilized, underthought about aspect of our core as being our diaphragm. Correct. A lot mm-hmm. of people just think core is everything that's kind of, you know, that wraps around your midsection. They don't even think about the diaphragm or the pelvic floor for that matter, but that is definitely part of it. And so, I mean, I, I love the fact that, that you tie that in and maybe that's something that we need to be a little bit more cognizant of as we're training our patients. Asymmetrically so is how, what are they doing with their breathing? Are, right. are they breathing as, as effectively, as efficiently as they should? And maybe that's something that we could do a future low back pain Google podcast series episode on <laughs> right, as like, a teaser right like what is the core and how does it fire and what's yep. our role in that and and, and, mm-hmm. and going down and, and continuing to look at different commonly prescribed exercises that that you will find on google and that you'll find all over the world that talks about like is this really what our core does right. and does this really help our core fire more efficiently and effectively and appropriately for upright function in the tasks these individuals want to do. Yep. I yeah. agree. I feel like we could I've, do several. Oh, go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, no. I was just going to say, I've looked through many anatomy books and I've still yet to see anything say core and have a pin to it. <laughs> exactly. Um, in addition to that, there's been several times I've been posed the question, you know, what happens if my patient just has pain in sitting? Um, what am I supposed to look at functionally and, and where does your brain go? How are you supposed to make someone better in sitting? If we're supposed to be movement professionals, that's not movement necessarily, um, which I think is a good question. I think it's going to bring up a lot of different thought processes on how to handle somebody that maybe doesn't have pain when they're up and walking. It's only when I sit. So that's a little teaser for some upcoming episodes that we're going to do with respect to the low back as well. Um, any final comments, guys? 
No, great job, Jen. Dan. Oh, yeah, no, I think I think we 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 covered a lot of different material here and, and hit on some commonly prescribed exercises, um, and, and I think that a lot of therapists would look at those commonly prescribed exercises and be like, you know what, some of those are direct contraindications to each other, so mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna sca- I'm gonna scrap some of those because it doesn't it doesn't work because it, you know, like we talked about from the directional preference. So, you know, I hope our listeners garnered that. I hope that, you know, with our discussion about top down versus bottom up, that we have people starting to look more at pelvic movement prior to giving some of those commonly prescribed bottom up exercises. And then it really translates into some additional conversations in the clinic about, you know, how do we evaluate and assess this and then treat it? Um, Because it is something that is very commonly seen in the world of PT um, and very commonly seen in the world of physicians. I mean, outside of the common cold, it's the most reason, most common reason to go to the doctor. So, uh, you know, I think that this is, this, this garners additional conversations from us on how to continue to help our listeners and our therapists handle this with greater success. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of like what you said there just about, taking a look at the pelvis, just wrapping that whole thought process up. So it seems like what would be maybe a good homework assignment for someone that is still maybe a little bit lost of how to apply this tomorrow is with their patient with low back pain, maybe the homework assignment is simply, well, figure out if they like their back to move by using their pelvis or maybe how they, if they like their um, low back to move with moving their their chest or their T-spine. I mean, just that alone will open up Absolutely. a directional preference, whether it's top down or bottom up. And who cares about the different planes of motion, the eight different variables? Like, I mean, that's right. easy to get lost in that. But if you simply just say, take a look at your patient, say, ooh, this patient does a lot better with their exercises using pelvic movements bottom up compared to top down, that might give you worth your weight in gold advice of where to take that patient through their exercise prescription. That's incredible. (laughs) Well, guys, thank you for listening so much. Thank you for your input, gentlemen. Um, We hope that we're seeing some light bulbs go off and getting some critical thinking hats going and all of that fun stuff. Um, Stay tuned for further low back pain podcasts. And if you have any questions, comments, feedback, Please email us at therapistsinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thanks.